Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Guillermo and I chat with David Shea. We talk about his career and research spanning from his early work on networking, mobile, peer-to-peer, and all the way up to his work on blockchain. Along the way, we touch on topics like the price of anarchy, his prism work, and other works that formalize the ways that Bitcoin functioned. We also talk about his work with the Ethereum Foundation, which led to his new project, Babylon. Now, before we kick off, I do want to let you know about two initiatives happening in the community at the moment. The first is the ZK Whiteboard Sessions. This is part of ZK Hack and powered by Polygon. It's a new series of educational videos that will help you get onboarded into the foundational concept needed to better understand zero-knowledge tech. The second thing I want to mention is the ZK Jobs Board. If you are looking to find a new job or if you're a team hiring, be sure to check it out. Over on the ZK Jobs Board, there are a fresh batch of new open roles. These roles are at ZK or cryptography-focused projects like Anoma, Alio, or Web3 Foundation. This is a great place to learn about relevant projects and the types of roles that they're looking for. So if you're looking for your next job opportunity, be sure to check it out. I've added the link to all of these in the show notes. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Alio. Alio is a new layer one blockchain that achieves the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash, and the scalability of a rollup. If you're interested in building private applications, then check out Alio's programming language called Leo. Leo enables non-cryptographers to harness the power of ZKPs to deploy decentralized exchanges, hidden information games, regulated stablecoins, and more. Visit leo-lang.org to start building. That's leo-lang.org. You can also join Alio's incentivized testnet 3 by downloading and running a Snark OS node. No signup is necessary to participate. For questions, join their Discord at alio.org Discord. So thanks again, Alio. Now here is Anna and Guillermo's interview with Professor David Che. So today we're here with guest David Che, Professor of Electrical Engineering at Stanford, as well as the co-founder of Babylon. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much, Anna. It's great to be here. And for this episode, we have Guillermo joining as co-host. And actually, just a note, we're here in person. So we're doing this uh, in person. I'm very excited that we get to do more of these now. Uh, Guillermo, this was a little bit your idea, putting this together. So maybe you can tell us a bit about what you were thinking and why you thought David would be awesome on the Zero Knowledge podcast. Yeah, so so essentially, uh, I guess David and I met kind of early on. And uh, in particular, I've I've always wanted to grab a drink with David and explore exactly how he went from, you know, through the meandering path of uh, starting from wireless networks and uh, information theory all the way to blockchain. Uh, and, and in particular, there's a lot of your papers that have received pretty high praise and, and one that always comes to mind because Tarun always raves about it is uh, everything is a race and Nakamoto mm-hmm. always wins, which is um, I, I believe it's he says that there's not not one paper that comes close to it in the space. And there might never be a paper that comes close to it in the space, uh, given his current you know trajectory on that. But these are the kinds of things that I would love to chat about, along with uh, a number of your more recent papers, you know, some of them regarding Ethereum 2.0. Uh, when will the merge happen? I mean, sorry, no, I'm not supposed to ask that, actually. I think that was... We, we, <laughs> the one request. <laughs> the one request that we had in this episode. Don't was ask that, that. I can't ask that. 
But otherwise, but now you just no. did. That's right. I think it took you about two minutes. Hey, I, I think that's a, that's a that's a world record. I mean, then there you go. All right. So, anyways, cool. um, with that, I'm 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 yeah. quite curious to you know to kick it off. That's right. Okay, so. I think we often start this with a little bit of backstory, understanding the journey to get to work on consensus blockchain generally, because you didn't start there. No, no. Um, I start way back. My PhD thesis was on networking, actually. Oh, yes. like networking. traditional networking or yes. was it like wireless? Well, uh, networking. So in those days, there's an interesting story there, is that uh, that was sort of before internet became the, the actual internet we see now. At that time, it was not very clear on what would be the networking infrastructure that would rule the world. At risk of uh, being terrible, what, yes. what, what year was what it? Era? That was, uh, so now you are trying to entice <laughs> me to review my age, but it's okay, it's okay. So this was mid-90s. So okay. that was okay. when I was working on my PhD thesis. In those days, there was a technology called ATM. Now, Guillermo, Anna, your age... <laughs> You've probably never heard of this technology other than us thinking it's an ATM machine or something. Maybe me, though. Well, maybe I'm a little you. older than Gary. Okay. Yeah, actually. <laughs> so ATM was a totally different way of building the networking infrastructure. Okay. It was built by, designed by telecommunication companies. In those days, there was a telephone network, right? Mm-hmm. Remember companies like AT&T. It's like the telephone company. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then they thought, hey, maybe when data, when we need... Instead of voice, we have data. We should have like centralized design of the whole networking infrastructure, just like the telephone network, which is for data. Sure. In those days, several key phone companies got together and tried to push a standard called ATM, asynchronous transfer mode. Oh, okay. Okay. And so my research was basically how to design these networks for the particular characteristics of data as opposed to voice. Mm. So that was my PhD thesis. Going back to what he said, though, what era are we talking? This was mid-90s. Okay. Yes, this was mid-90s. It right. was all the rage. Yeah. Everyone was working on ATM at that time. <clears throat> I was so. sentient. I was alive. <laughs> you were there, yeah, actually. I was quite, conscious. Quite, quite conscious. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was not. You were not. Uh, so, But the funny thing was, when I was finishing my PhD thesis, okay, then this whole thing went bust. <laughs> okay why because it was completely a top-down push right and that's not how the internet came about no. the internet was come from the bottom up that's right and so the bottom-up effort won and the top-down effort lost and so now i'm stuck because <laughs> i spent you know a few years working on this phd thesis i prove a bunch of theorems <laughs> about you know large deviations there was a mathematics yeah, i was using called large deviations to analyze sort of the performance of these networks in the face of data. And at that time, I got a job at Berkeley. So that mm. was my first job. I say you were a professor, at, you were assistant professor at Berkeley. Yes, I got a job at Berkeley, but there was one year of transitional time. I was doing a postdoc at AT&T Bell Labs. Oh, okay. So you did and work so, at Bell Labs. Awesome. Yes, so I spent that one year thinking, okay, now that my PhD thesis have collapsed, <laughs> what should I work on? Because you know, you've, in university, there's a thing called tenure that you That's have right. to get. That's right. And it doesn't seem like this area of ATM is going to support a tenured uh, portfolio. And uh, so that's when I learned about this area of wireless. Right. So if you remember in the early 90s, wireless was like these huge phones. Mm-hmm. 
And less than a million of them are around in the whole world. The only reference I actually, I like, I actually never saw those in person, but I think on Fresh Prince of Bel Air, at one point he whips out this like gigantic. <laughs> it's, it's like a water I, yeah. water tank, a water bottle, it's like a right? Brick. Yeah, it's like yeah. a brick. And he just holds it to the side of. And you were really cool if you had. Yes, in fact, in those days, the bigger the better, <laughs> because bang, it's like. Wait. They you did know. have like car phones back then. Though, <laughs> they did. Eh? They had car phones. Yes. Were they the same technology or were they I like believe it's a similar technology, so. yes. Okay. Uh, but those days the bigger the better because when you sit and talking with you and I put the phone on the table, it's like Everyone well, that a symbol. It's <laughs> like, right. this guy has a, a brick. Massive yes. yeah, a phone, cell phone, I guess, right. So in in those days, a phone is like attached to the wall, right? That's what people understand a phone. Yep. So although this is a very big brick. It's still a, a step up because you can actually move it around. Yeah. Right. It doesn't have to be attached to a wall. So I would say those are mobile phone. I mean, it's kind of <laughs> not stretching so mobile it. phone. But in any way, in any case, and so those days people were thinking now of trying to develop this wireless infrastructure. But then the problem was that the spectrum for wireless is much more narrow than for wireline. So for mm-hmm. wireline, you can communicate over many, many megahertz That's of right. bandwidth. But in wireless, you only have this, you know, one megahertz of bandwidth. This is what the FCC allows you. That's what the FCC right. allows you. Otherwise, you'll be interfering with other applications like military, etc. That's right. Mm. And so the research problem at that time that everyone was interested in, how do I squeeze more bits into this very narrow spectrum? <laughs> okay. Interesting. Because at that point, people were now thinking, remember that in, in wireline, people were thinking about data. Mm-hmm. And so the wireless people also started thinking, hey, if the wireline has data, then the wireless, being the last hop, has to carry data as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so data has much more demand on the bandwidth. So people are kind of worried. Although at that point, iPhone hasn't arrived yet. People are already quite worried that, hey, how do we going to squeeze enough bits through this very narrow spectrum? That was the uh, after my PhD thesis. And so I was kind of lucky because during my PhD thesis, in addition to my useless PhD thesis, <laughs> I've also adopted a side interest. And this side interest is in a subject called information theory. Yep. Okay. So information theory is a subject started by a guy named Claude Shannon. In 1948, he wrote this groundbreaking paper. Mm. Klaus Shannon is a very interesting genius. He's very unorthodox. Although he was a professor at MIT, he almost never had any students. Mm-hmm. But he had one sort of his disciple. Ah. And his disciple's name is Bob Gallagher. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he happened to be my advisor. Okay. Okay. But at that point, he was not that interested in what information theory anymore. He wants to do networking. And so that's why my PhD thesis was in networking. Interesting. But then I learned information theory from him. And I thought, wow, this is a very beautiful subject. But he kept on telling me to do my PhD thesis in <laughs> networking because that was all the rage, networking. But wait, you did a bunch of large deviation bounds in your yes, networking. but that's so not that- information theory. That's yeah. just stochastic process, random process applied to networking. Okay, but a lot, I think, are there a lot of tools imported yes, from there information is some, theory? Yes, there to... is some connection, clearly, from a mathematical point of view. Yes, that's right. But from Actually, a research yeah. problem point of view, it's very different. I have a book right there called Concentration Inequalities and Model Selection, which is exactly right. uh, applied yes. information theory for, I think it's Pascal Massart. So anyways, yes, yeah. Correct. Okay. 
So sorry, back. So I actually didn't know you were a Bob Gallagher student. This is uh, yeah. So interesting. I have two okay. advisors. One is Bob Gallagher. One is John Sisiklis. Two of okay. two very smart people. One is information theorist. The other one is the stochastic process person. Ah. So that's how I learned the two skills set needed. But then, since I learned this useless information theory, but then when Wireless showed up, I figured out, hey, you know what? Information theory is the theory which would tell you how many bits you can actually push into this very narrow band yeah. and what's the optimal way of communicating. Mm -hmm. And so that started my totally new research direction. And uh, that was my first career. <laughs> yes, the beginning of my first career. That's right. Where were you doing all this? So I started doing this at AT&T Biolabs. That was when my postdoc. And then I became an assistant professor at Berkeley. And that's where I built a research group to do this research. So that was my research phase. Now, this was 1995 to 2000. Mm -hmm. And who was your first student again? I think we'll come back to this very soon. Yes. But... My first student, his name is Pramod Visvanath. Okay. He's now a professor at Princeton University. Also in information theory or communication or what? Yes. He, he was my first student and it was in information theory. Okay. Yes. Okay. Correct. It was wireless. That's, okay. Yes. Right. I mean, for, for context, I guess, David has a probably the most famous wireless textbook uh, it was a, yes one of one of the more widely used. I, I should I, say one of the is better. I, yes. I, I, one of the just for political purposes, but but I, as far as I know, it's it's the only one that I know. And I mean, maybe of course I'm biased, also from Stanford, which we'll get to as well. But the one that is used kind of everywhere. I, I don't know yeah, a that single book other was, one. It was a collaboration actually with Promote. Oh, okay, that book. Okay, yes. okay, okay, perfect. So anyway, so sorry. Okay, so so you've built. So we, yes, we have, I built my lab. I have a bunch of very good students, super students. And I wrote, <laughs> we wrote a bunch of papers. But then I thought to myself, okay, I have these papers, very nice papers, uh, winning some awards, but who's going to use it? Who's going to care about it? <laughs> Is it going to make it into some cell phones or not? So then I started thinking, I said, okay, if I want to have an impact, I should go where the rubber hits the road. In other words, places where people are building this technology, not in academia. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, there was this sort of emerging company called Qualcomm. Mm. Ah. Yeah, yeah. At that time, it was a relatively small company. Yeah. That's right. And uh, <laughs> my advisor told me, hey, uh, there are some cool people there. So I decided to spend six months leave from Berkeley okay. to try to see whether my research are useful in solving real world problems or I need to develop some other things to solve the problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I was really lucky because Qualcomm at that time was building the technology for wireless data. Yeah. And that was called third generation wireless. That was the first generation in which the system was optimized for data, the wireless mm -hmm. system. First and second generation was all for voice. Okay. And it turned out that a problem that I solved in my research is basically a perfect fit to a key component of this technology. And so the, the invention I had during those six months resulted in a pattern that was basically used in all cell phones from 3G, 4G, 5G. Even oh. the phones that you're all using mm. is using this technology. What, what, right is, what is this patent, actually? Just okay. out of curiosity yeah. for, for general context. Yeah, so that, I think that's a good example of why information theory is powerful. Yes. Because in those days, wireless is like a very bad medium because people think that, hey, the channel sometimes become very strong. Mm -hmm. So it's being very weak. It's called fading. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to communicate over. So it's a bad thing. Yes. And people are trying to make it flat as flat as possible. But mm -hmm. information theory actually tells you the reverse. 
it tells you that you should optimistically use the peak of the channel yep. to communicate, to get a lot of bits through. And when this guy, you, uh, Guillermo, has a weak channel, Anna may have a good channel, and mm-hmm. I can switch to Anna and communicate when the channel is very good. Mm. So, so this results in sort of an opportunistic scheduling policy, mm-hmm. which is what information theory tells me is optimal. And so I introduced this idea to the engineers at Qualcomm. Mm-hmm. They were very skeptical. They said, this doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to us at all. I never thought of the problem this way. But after a few months of a lot of work and convincing, they finally implemented it. Oh, there you and, go. Uh, All right. And what was the result? How, how many uh, did you get? 2x. S- oh, okay. There you go. Nice. All right. So the throughput increased by 2x. Holy crap. Yeah. This might have been before his time there, but like, did you ever cross paths with like Anatoly? Because Anatoly from Solana comes out of Qualcomm. Oh, does I he think. come out of Qualcomm? Engineering. I, I, I think Anatoly's think... a little later. And, but... Assuming? Yeah, I don't think I met Anatoly okay. Okay. at that time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, which is why he's he's super into the weird, crazy, low-level exactly. uh, tricks. At least actually. that's what I we, I had him on sub like two years ago or so, and I I feel like I remember him saying that. At this point, we are at two thousand five. Where what time? Yeah, that was uh, early two thousand. Now, okay, yeah, early two thousand. So that's when we decided to aggregate all this knowledge that we have mm-hmm. and write this book that you right. mentioned earlier. Guillermo mentioned earlier, fundamentals of wireless communication which kind of gives us a unified view of the whole subject. And that's usually the, my research style, is that instead of just solving individual problems and call it a day and move on to some other areas, I want to sort of develop a sort of a more coherent and unified understanding. So mm-hmm. my advisor, Gallagher, taught me one thing, which I think I want to share with the audience, because this is not just wireless. It's a very interesting <laughs> way of looking at research. Is that he said, there's a concept called knowledge tree where each leaf is a piece of knowledge. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, when they do research, they think of growing the knowledge tree, adding your own leaf or your own twig or your own branch. Mm-hmm. However, he said that a really successful research is instead of growing, you prune the knowledge tree. Oh, that's Why spicy. is that? Okay. Because if you prune the knowledge tree, that means you're unifying your understanding of seemingly disparate knowledge, different leaves, into a coherent whole. Mm-hmm. And so, in some sense, a lot of my research in different fields is about how to prune the knowledge tree. It's, this feels, uh, which I think we'll get to in the very near future as well, but this feels a very Stephen uh, Boyd-like approach. Yes, uh, yes. Because so I see why you yes. two became friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, you know, pruning the knowledge tree is very tied to the educational enterprise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. if you want to teach something... You don't want to teach the student 10,000 different facts. Mm-hmm. Right. You want to teach them one general principle for which use. the individual facts can be derived and they can go and derive new facts. That's right. And would you say like in an emerging space that just hasn't been defined yet? Like people might be like using some first principle, but like they couldn't necessarily describe it yet. And that's what you're trying to dig up, explain, communicate with those books. Yeah, exactly. So, work. I mean, Shannon's paper is a very good example because communication has been around for 100 years before its paper. Mm. Communication started with the telegram, telephone in the mid-1800s, mm-hmm. Alexander Bell, etc. So people have been building communication system for 100 years, but everybody is building their own system. Yeah. So the telephone people are building their system, the telegram people are building their system, the television people are building their system, radio people are building their system. 
They don't talk to each other. Mm. <laughs> and what Shannon said is that, wait a minute, wait a minute. All these people are just doing different facets of the same general problem, which is communicating information from point A to point B. Yeah. And through this abstraction, you are now having a unified method. Mm-hmm. So if you think about all the communication physical medium that we have here nowadays, optical, wireless, wireline, cable modem, etc., they're all based on design based on the same principle. Were you interested at that time in sort of the decentralized communications happening? Because like around 2000, there was a lot of, you know, P2P stuff happening to move information. I mean, it's moving, granted, it's moving over wires and rails that already exist. But was that interesting to you at the time? Yeah, in fact, um, you were asking me what we were doing after my work at Qualcomm. Uh, We spent the time writing the book. But at that time, we were also thinking of finding new research problems. Okay. And one of the research problems that people were thinking about is now suppose you don't have a central base station, and suppose you have some emergency scenario where you have a bunch of nodes peer-to-peer, what is the best way of communicating? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we were in, in particularly interested in a so-called scaling problem, which means as you increase the number of nodes, as more and more people using how, how fast can you increase the total rate of communication? So that's in some sense a decentralized problem because now the question is, how do you kind of spread the traffic across many different connections mm-hmm. in an efficient way? Okay, so that was an open problem and uh, we actually solved it. Oh, okay. And we find a scheme that achieves, very surprisingly, linear scaling. That is, as you put more and more nodes, you your throughput actually more. increase linearly. Wow. Wait, what is this paper? Or? So this paper is actually with IFA. Okay. If you know IFA. Yeah, IFA yeah, is yeah, another professor That's at Stanford, right. IFA Osklu. And mm-hmm. it says that uh, hierarchical cooperation achieves linear scaling. Okay. Was IFA a PhD student then? Yes, that was his, her PhD thesis. But what is the title of this uh, paper? Or was this an entire PhD it, thesis? Yeah, it's called Hierarchical Cooperation Achieves Linear Scaling where we have a sort of hierarchical way of these nodes cooperating. So typically, right. people think of wireless uh, multi-hop, right? So you get some traffic, you forward to the other guy. Mm-hmm. And that method only achieves so-called square root of n scale. Mm-hmm. Square mm-hmm. root of n scale. So you increase the number of nodes, the total throughput actually decreases per node. It's under, mm-hmm. it's, it's under the linear line. Yeah, under the linear line. Because why? Because sort of each node is have to do a lot of work in forwarding different traffic. Right. But we figure out that if you do it in a hierarchical manner, cooperation manner, you can achieve linear scaling. Right. Cool. Yes. So we got this beautiful results and we were really excited about it. But then we realized that actually nobody's actually building this system. <laughs> the P2P stuff. The, the P2P stuff. Anymore. Yes. It was the winter, yes, yes. the P2P winter. Yes. And I think in your one of your early conversation with uh, Sri Ram, he alluded to this as well. Yeah. And uh, so we were a little bit disappointed because we feel like we have got the optimal scheme. Right. But, you know, Nobody nobody's cares. interested. <laughs> Nobody cares. Right. Nobody yeah. cares. So at that point, I realized that, hey, maybe it's time to kind of move on <laughs> to some other area where there are more promising uh, pastures. Also, I guess uh, for context, 
you know, while this result is like very, very nice, it does not hold in a blockchain context. I'm sure David can elaborate as to why, but essentially you're assuming that everyone is happily cooperating with yes. each other. This yes. is the hierarchical mode? This is the hierarchical okay. case, right? So there's a classic question of when you have a bunch of peers connected to, you know, a given, for, for a given chain, for example, you actually don't achieve, you cannot achieve this O of N scale. I don't know if there's an impossibility result on that, but you essentially cannot achieve this O of N scaling kind of under. Because yeah. you, you always have people who are doing bad things. I see. Yeah, so this is assuming a perfect world or like one organization a, running everything. No, assuming wouldn't. not necessarily even an organization, but a cooperative world where everyone uh, yeah. is, yes. there's no person trying to kind of mess with it. It's not a hostile yeah. environment. That's right. Yes. Information theorists are very benign. You know, They think the world is very good. <laughs> everyone should work together. That's right. In fact, at this similar time frame, uh, Tim Roth Gordon, I don't know oh, if you yes. interviewed him in your not yet, shows. But I know him. He's a very interesting yeah. guy. He <laughs> starts thinking about uh, a problem where each node is not willing fully co cooperate, but cooperate only based on an incentive basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to figure out sort of what are the good Nash equilibrium. That's right. And uh, so that was another line of work. And there, there's a, a lovely term for this. It's called the price of anarchy, if anyone does want to look it up, Ooh. which it turns out the price of anarchy is the best possible case if you had a central planner. So if you had one person directing the flow of every, you know, traffic, in this case, uh, data, for example, uh, one organization, that is the best possible you could do. Of course, yeah. this person could just you benevolently say, we are going to maximize the amount of data that gets through here, okay. period. If I set it as law, it's going to happen. The price of anarchy says something a little bit different. It says if you instead allow people to like act according to their own incentives to pass data or not, you actually achieve a suboptimal result. And the price of anarchy quantifies how suboptimal it is. Right? It's the difference between those two things. That's right. And you can imagine there's a gap a because anything that people are incentivized to do by themselves, certainly a central planning organization can force upon them, can say this is you know what you want to do. But on the other hand, it's not true the other way around, mm. right? You cannot take a very nice plan and then expect it to be kind of what people call incentive compatible. You cannot expect people to follow it just by their own will, even, you know, according to their own incentives. Cool. So this is uh, now, I guess, mid to late 2000s, right? Is that about the yeah, it's late Yeah, it's about two, late 2000s. Okay. Yes. And then uh, I believe around there uh, you were poached, actually, right? Or is that a little bit later? So be between then and blockchain, there is uh, another story. Okay. But I don't know whether we want to talk too much about that story because we want to get to blockchains, I guess, right? We do um, want to get to blockchains, but, but let's let's hear yeah, a little something about it. A quick summary would be lovely. Yeah, so information theory is basically about sort of what's the best way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So at that time, I was looking for something else, and I just happened to stumble in a random workshop at a place called Newton Institute in Cambridge, <laughs> where they talk about this problem called sequencing, mm -hmm. genome sequencing. Oh, that's right. So basically, genome mm. sequencing is a really interesting problem. It's a jigsaw puzzle. You take a very long sequence, 3 billion symbols, that's our genome. Mm -hmm. You want to read the whole sequence from beginning to end, but nobody can do that. No, no instrument can do that. So what you do is you chop it up into very small fragments called reads. And then you want to sample it enough so that there's a lot of overlap between these reads. And then you sort of try to fill, put the jigsaw puzzle together to get the original sequence. So that's the sequencing problem. And of course, that's a very important technology. That's how the human genome was sequenced in the first place. But and as an information theorist, I start asking the question, okay, so you get data, you want to recover the ground truth. 
Well, what is the minimum amount of data I need to sample? <laughs> right? How many reads do I need to sample? Because that's an important question. Because if you can do, get by with fewer reads, then you can sequence more mm -hmm. organisms, yeah, for yeah. example, using the same budget. Cool. And so we start thinking about this question, and then we provide solutions to this problem, and then we develop some assembly methods to try to achieve this limit. So that was in now in the early 2010s, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that was our focus of our group at that time. And that kind of culminated in an interesting paper, just you know, before we get too much into the blockchain, which uh, I, I actually just pulled it up. It's a hidden Hamiltonian cycle recovery via linear programming kind of explains all of the results you had prior. Yeah, Very that was nice part stuff. of the yeah, that was part of the research. Right. Um, yes. So yeah, it's, so a, it's a really cool paper, by the way. It's it's actually like it's an, it's an insane result, which is very shocking. But uh, essentially, yeah, that's it, right. It says something like we take a the, this problem is known to be very very hard for computers to solve, uh, but it turns out if you have enough samples, so if you if you take enough reads, it actually becomes extremely easy. And mm. doing the the you know the silly thing of kind of putting everything together, uh, this is called you know whatever a linear relaxation uh, actually achieves exactly the right result, as if by magic. You know, yeah, you know, so a lot of people, when they look at the assembly problem, the standard approach is on a computational basis. Mm -hmm. You want to find efficient algorithms to do it. But it turns out if you look at it from an information theory point of view, which is the minimum of amount of data, it turns out it gives you inspiration directly of finding mm -hmm. efficient algorithms to get those information limits. And that's what we were working on. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of my introduction to sort of data science genomics. Mm -hmm. And I worked there for a few years. Now, one thing I observe about that area, though, as opposed to wireless, is that the people driving the research agenda in genomics are the biologists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People who are like me, developing computational tools, are like plumbers. <laughs> they just call you in to fix yeah, They call the us plumbing. in and say, hey, man, <laughs> we have this data set, or I have this application. Can you help me to actually you know, analyze this data? Now, I don't know about you, but plumber, <laughs> of course, plumbers make a lot of money, so that's good. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the status symbol is a little bit low. <laughs> a little bit low. So I think the problem there is because there is a, the engineering is kind of subservice to right. the science. Right. Mm -hmm. right, right, right. And I'm primarily an engineer, not a scientist, right? Mm -hmm. I would not be able to identify the next groundbreaking biological problem to ask. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. And so at that point, I, I realized that maybe this is not an area which I want to spend the rest of my life in. Mm -hmm. And so again, I'm on the search. Uh -huh. So it I, was I'm fun. I'm seeing a bit of a pattern. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, maybe it's a restlessness <laughs> pattern, perhaps. Yes. But it's probably, I mean, I think I have something similar. I've switched through many industries and focuses. So at the end of that, though, you do have this, you tend to have a broader view, or sometimes you can pull things from these other spaces. And yeah, I no believe very so. Useful. And pulls things he does, that's uh -huh. for sure. Okay. I believe so. You know, sometimes, like my PhD thesis, right? I spent four years doing it, and it turned out to be not very useful. <laughs> it doesn't mean, though, it's like a whole lost, everything lost, because I learned a lot while doing it. Yeah. Right? Trying to find the right problem, learn some mathematical skills, so it's always useful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I tell my students always that it's okay if your PhD thesis does not change the world. It's okay. Yeah. But the more important thing is that you should learn while doing it. For sure. Because you, what you learn will be useful for your next stage of your career, whatever you choose to do. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I think we have maybe arrived. We have actually at blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're in two hundred one eight. And in fact, actually, that is, I believe, the year that uh, we met, or did we meet in twenty seventeen? Around there, yes. We met uh, probably in twenty seventeen. So yes. for for context, mm-hmm. uh, I I think I was your head TA for a, a very specific class with Stephen as well called Introduction to Linear Algebra. Um, hey, that's the class I took. There you go. Not, yeah, not yeah. at Stanford at McGill. Well, you, you should but have. It would have been whatever. fun. And then maybe you would have been a mathematician <laughs> then instead. If I had done it there. Yeah, yes. exactly. Um, but so, okay. So that, that's that's actually where we originally met. Mm, uh, yes. We were co-teaching this class. Right. So uh, that was when I moved to Stanford. Oh, you had just yeah, moved to Stanford. Yeah, I moved to Stanford in 2014 timeframe. Okay. 1415 yeah. timeframe. And linear algebra was one of the courses I started teaching. That's right. In the first okay. two or three years. Yes. That's right. Oh, no, you're right. It was 20. Sorry, it was earlier. You're right. It was 2016 was when the course was initially taught, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think you were still an undergraduate, if I remember correctly. I, I was. I TA'd that and then convex right yeah. afterwards, if I recall. Yes. Uh, although you did not. It was Sanjay, I believe. But anyways, okay, so digressing. So I love teaching freshmen. So that was a freshman course. <laughs> I love teaching freshmen because, you know, freshmen, they come in with very little bias. And it's right. great to be able to sort of engage with them at that point. Yeah. I think it's great. Yes. I, and actually, I'm still getting comments about that class, that that class was actually what turned people into doing you know, more math, actually. They were like, math is not... Formal just, thinking, yeah. Formal yeah. thinking. Because but, but it trains people even, to think Even formally. more generally as like, uh, you know, math isn't just, you know, let's prove X thing for Y reason. It's very much, uh, you know, its own art in a way. Mm. So anyways, it was, it was interesting because of that. But okay, so and and that this is this is around the time when you went down uh, down the rabbit hole, I believe. I think that's the technical term for it, uh, if I recall correctly. And what right? was that first project? Then what kind of triggered you working on something blockchain related? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I was looking for something new mm-hmm. in two hundred one eight, beginning of two hundred one eight, a certain event happened, which is Bitcoin went to the peak at that yes. time. The peak was almost 20k mm-hmm. almost 20k mm-hmm. nowadays when we saw, see bitcoin 20k is like <laughs> the end of the world but someone with a little bit longer perspective will tell you that 20k is actually very high already yeah. because it was the last peak that's right and so at that time there was some interest in doing research in blockchains mm-hmm. and i was recruited actually uh, in your podcast with sriram he already mentioned he was recruited by promote oh. his advisor in working on blockchains oh. and promote being my former student also recruited me. Got it. And in fact, he recruited a bunch of people, not only me and Shuram, but a bunch of very good people. Cool. And we start forming a group doing research in blockchain. And I took a year of uh, absence from Stanford to focus my effort into nice. learning about the subject and trying to understand what are the interesting problems. Because, you know, blockchain are typically two types of people from academia working on <laughs> <laughs> One, cryptographer, yep. and two, distributed system. Those mm-hmm. two are the main branch of science that enters into blockchain. But we are information theorists. That's our background. Very few information theorists work in this area. And so we thought, hey, first of all, there's a lot to learn. But you know, sometimes when you move into a new area, you bring your own perspective. Something interesting may happen. For sure. So we, are, so we kind of did a bet on that, and we spent a year working on it and... Uh, so that led to our first paper, uh, Prism, that right. I think Shuram also mentioned yeah. in his podcast. I should mention that podcast, actually. So we have another episode we did with Shuram Kanan, uh, and I think it came out uh, three, four months ago. We'll add the link to that in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. 
actually at this point, from this point on, there's going to be a lot of overlap in terms of the works because it seems like you co-authored together quite often. Yeah, Shuram and I work very closely together. We, as Shuram mentioned in his podcast, we talk on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> cool. Because, you know, if you want to learn something new, it's really better if you have a bunch of people talking to each other than you yourself yep. trying to read, like, Godzilla number papers. And honestly, <laughs> that are pretty badly these written. blockchain papers are either, like, bogus <laughs> yeah. in terms of what they claim, or the rigorous ones, which are very good, but it's extremely hard to penetrate. Oh, yeah. A lot of them will be using their own words for the same things. I don't know if you've noticed that. Oh, it's yes. exciting. It's like, it's a new vocabulary yes, every time. That's right. And then you have to, you're like, oh, that's the this in this other one. That's right. right. Yeah. So, you know, the core of blockchain is consensus, right? But apparently there's no consensus on, on the vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there, there might be eventual consensus of the vocabulary, but that might be as T goes to infinity. So, um you know, if you want to wait around that long, I'll, I'll let you do that. But unfortunately, I think uh, each person has to come up with their Rosetta Stone for for this uh, mm. this translation layer, so to speak. You know, now that we've gotten to Prism, do you want to describe what actually? I, I don't know if Shuram did the original I in the think, episode. I think he did, but I think it would be great it to actually be, hear it again. Yeah, and maybe you maybe you just find it a little bit differently too. Yeah, yeah, maybe I can take a little bit different perspective on that problem. So, yeah, as Shuram mentioned, the two big problems at that time was. How do you increase the throughput mm -hmm. and how do you reduce the latency of Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as information theorists, we start asking, okay, all right, if you want to increase the throughput or reduce the latency, are there any fundamental limits? Right? So right. what are the let, let's let's have a ruler to figure out what's the fundamental limit first. Mm -hmm. And then we try to figure out, okay, how far is Bitcoin from these fundamental limits? Mm -hmm. And let's say we can bridge the gap. So first observation we had was Bitcoin is really far away from the fundamental limits. Oh. Because, <laughs> you know, Bitcoin is a distributed system, yeah. right? So a distributed system is limited by two things. One is the propagation delay of communication, mm -hmm. right? If all the nodes are in one place, there's no consensus issue because everyone can get an instantaneous update as yeah. to what the other guy's doing. Because of the delay, there is a split view issue. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing, the delay. Yep. Two is the throughput is limited by either the processing speed of the computer or the communication link. Mm. But both are very fast. We know we are fast, very fast computers mm -hmm. and we're very fast networking, right? right? That was my early career. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I was sensitive to that. Right. In fact, we measure Bitcoin throughput and we figure out that Bitcoin throughput can fit into a telephone modem wow. from... The 90s, <laughs> 24, so that's, 28K. Are you saying then that's not causing the, dif the so difference? So that's not causing the limit. Okay, it's it's not because, right. okay. see our communication, right? Your cable modem, we're talking about hundreds of mm. megabits per second, hundreds of megabits per that's second. Right. So many orders of magnitude larger. So then we start figuring out, so what's going on? Why, why is there such a big gap? And so that's kind of motivated prism. It sounds, I don't know if this is at all related, but it sounds a bit to the, like a throwback to your anarchy's cost or something. Oh yeah, the, the price of anarchy. The price of anarchy, because you, you're comparing it to a central, a centralized version. Right? Uh, in so some actually, sense, yes. In some okay. sense, yes. Um, yes. But the price of anarchy result also says that the loss of performance from decentralization is not big. Is actually, it's yeah, it's, it's in fact constant. Yeah, it's ah. a constant factor. So that's, that's right. the price. In a lot of result. cases. Yeah. So then the challenge is whether or not one can improve Bitcoin 
to get closer to those limits. And uh, what we figure out is that Bitcoin looks like a really simple protocol, right? Mm-hmm. Very simple protocol. Everybody does exactly the same thing like everyone else, which is to mine and keep on trying to solve this puzzle mm-hmm. to generate a block. And then once you generate a block, you work on the next block. Mm-hmm. So it looks like a really simple protocol, but it's actually packed with complexity. Mm-hmm. So this fellow, Nakamoto, or this group of fellow, Nakamoto, <laughs> really smart. Because if you think about it, if I mine and propose a block, right, mm-hmm. I'm actually doing multiple things with this block. One is I'm trying to put new transactions into the blockchain. But two is I'm also voting for all the previous transactions in the previous block. Because if I add right. a block, that means I am increasing my trust that this is the correct history. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm voting for all the transactions previously in the history. So actually, I'm doing at least two things. And if you think about it, the first thing of putting transaction in is about throughput. Mm-hmm. The second thing about voting was about confirmation and therefore about latency. Oh. So to be able to solve these two problems, first, I need to disentangle these two problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because obviously, it's hard to solve two problems at the same time. Okay? So basically, PRISM is about trying to break the blockchain structure into three types of blocks. Mm-hmm. One, purely for proposing. Two, purely for voting. Mm-hmm. And three, purely for carrying transactions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by breaking into three types of blocks, we can scale up the behavior in a separate way. And that's basically PRISM. Were you able to identify in that breaking also which one caused most of the kind of delta between the centralized and the regular? Like, was one of those more responsible than others for any sort of, like, lack of performance? Okay. So the problem of Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is kind of interesting because consensus is actually a 40-year-old problem. Okay? (laughs) Right. But Bitcoin is a consensus protocol. It has no connection absolute whatsoever to all the 40-year-old protocol. Mm. But yet it's the first one that is widely deployed in some Mm -hmm. sense in Mm -hmm. in an internet global scale. And so the, 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 the real reason why he, he, Nakamoto could do that is because it slows down everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, you see? he just sort of didn't care about right. So if you think about a typical consensus protocol <laughs> where you have 100 nodes, yeah. then everybody is voting at the same time. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of complexity in trying to deal with, hey, you know, many people are talking and some people may be talking bad things, wrong things. And mm-hmm. try to disentangle that is very difficult. Right. Nakamura said, forget it. I am not interested in speed. I'm only interested in a very robust system that can be used at global scale. Mm-hmm. And so what he did was he slowed down everybody so that only one person in some sense can speak at a time. And so when you try to speed it up, that's when the problem starts. Because then you're confronting, in some sense, the 40-year-old consensus problem. But now you have to deal with many other issues like proof of work or permissionless that people can join. Yeah. So what we basically did was we think of, instead of having a lot of people voting, we sort of allow sort of each person to have sort of a voting chain. So each chain is still a Nakamoto chain. Mm-hmm. But now all these chains are regulated by Nakamoto problem, by Nakamoto mechanism, but yet they can simultaneously vote to speed up the confirmation. 
So I would say the speeding up of the confirmation was the most difficult part of the problem. Interesting. Because that was but when... But it was the voting dimension. Yeah, the voting dimension kind of was the most difficult. Yeah. But did you do it on each of them? So you were trying to optimize each of them. That one is the hard one. How did you do it on the other ones? Yeah, so we first solved the voting problem, the fast confirmation. And then we realized that what Nakamoto did was the following. He said, if you propose a block, you have to put all the transactions into the block yep. and verify it, and then you can propose it. But that means that the, the, the throughput of the system, if you want to increase the throughput, your block size will become bigger. Mm-hmm. If the block is bigger, then you have a lot of delay. And if you have a lot of delay, you have a lot of consensus problem, so-called forking problem. Mm-hmm. And so there's a limit on how big the block size can be. In the case of Bitcoin, it's usually one megabyte. Yep. Okay, one megabyte. And so what we said is, hey, why don't we just take the transaction out of the story and have a separate type of blocks in this transaction mm-hmm. and just in some sense have hashes or representation of those transactions in a very small block. Mm-hmm. And you can pass it around very fast. And then you can vote on that and then make references to the transaction. And so this idea actually sort of became nowadays rather popular mm-hmm. and is used in many different protocols. It's essentially separate out the execution from mm-hmm. the consensus. This mm-hmm. sounds oddly familiar. No, Who shocking. else has done that recently or has talked about doing that recently? Yeah, so this or might be idea. doing it soon? <laughs> soon to you. <laughs> cool. Right. Essentially, yeah. So so uh, at, a, at a high level, I love the... The idea behind Prism actually is is, um, is quite an interesting one. It's like evaluating... like I believe actually it's a subtitle of the paper, but it's like essentially evaluating the physical limits of blockchain. Yeah, it's called by, deconstructing the blockchain to achieve... Physical, physical limits. limits, right? And and here the physical limits are, of course, those given to you by kind of the traditional, you know, gross metrics such as network delay uh, or or bandwidth. Correct. Right. Then starts leading into a number of other papers, though. Uh, this one's twenty eighteen or nineteen. Yeah, we finished correctly. in twenty nineteen, okay. end of twenty nineteen. So since this was the first problem that we worked on, we thought, hey, Bitcoin is the thing to improve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, after we spent all this effort on this paper... Why do I think there's another pattern? Okay. Ah, uh, yes, exactly. like we're going to hear... <laughs> now, that, now, that's often the case when you work on the first research problem, mm-hmm. is that you look at problem very fundamentally, but in some sense, the interest in the field could have shifted mm-hmm. while you're working on this problem. That's right. Okay. And what happened for us is that proof of work has shifted to proof of stake. For sure. Mm-hmm. So... You may ask, hey, your paper is so great. Why haven't I heard of it? This guy, is kind of, <laughs> what, what is he talking about, right? I'm, I, I tell you, that paper is great in my mind. <laughs> but I still agree. I, I understand why you may not have heard of it. And really the reason is because the center of mass of the field has shifted to proof of stake at yes. that point. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in proof of stake, the problems are quite different. And so... One of the, when we finished that paper and we realized that the center map shifted, so a natural thing was, okay, can we sort of adapt our protocol to proof of stake? Because our protocol has still a lot of interesting advantage. And that led to a more basic problem, which is, okay, can you adapt the longest chain protocol, which is Nakamoto protocol, to proof of stake, right? That's mm-hmm. the more basic question yeah. that we ask, okay? And so then we start looking at sort of the protocols that people are playing around with, okay? And we realize that proof of stick has one big problem, 
compared to proof of work. There's a problem called nothing at stake. Mm -hmm. Nothing at stake. Nothing at stake. So in proof of stake, I know. So <laughs> suppose you have you you think about Nakamoto's protocol, right? The protocol is you should always mine on the longest chain. You should always grow on the longest chain. It's a very simple protocol. One mm -hmm. sentence summarizes it. Yep. But then you ask, well, is there an incentive for the adversary to go and mine on other blocks, maybe to create confusion? And the answer is really no, because. If he tries to mine another block, then he has to consume computational power. He has only limited budget of his hash power, and then he can't mine on the tip anymore. So there's a very strong incentive for him to just forget about adversary action, just follow the longest chain. But for proof of stake, it's different, because stake is a, not a computational resource. No. And you can use that stake to try to bet on many different blocks and see, yep. hey, maybe I can win on other blocks. And if I can win on other blocks, because The lottery is different, so that's a nothing at stake problem. Mm. And as a result, you can like grow a forest and try to pick out the longest chain among them, mm -hmm. and you can win against the honest. Interesting. And that's actually a protocol that uh, Bram Cohen at um, Chia uh, yeah. was building okay. because there they were using the same concept of longest chain, but on proof of space. So proof of space and proof of stake is very similar because they both have this nothing at stake problem. Mm. And so we realized that, okay, the analysis of that protocol is extremely complicated now because you have so many people growing. Yes. So many chains growing. And so we, that led us to sort of try to find sort of a unified framework of analyzing all possible sort of longest chain protocol, whether it's proof of work, proof of space, or proof of stick. And here we get to, uh, I believe, Tarun's. Favorite yeah, paper. so that led to this paper, everything is a race and Nakamoto's always win. And what is it? Actually, which is kind of funny because you nerd sniped a very famous statistician who, as far as I know, has no idea about anything about blockchain, which is Amir Dempo. Right. Before we, well, yeah, before we get too deep in the, in the results, how did you even achieve uh, nerd sniping a statistician, actually? <laughs> so at that point, Guillermo we spent, yes. <laughs> yeah, at that point, we spent about a year, almost a year working this problem. Mm -hmm. trying to figure out... In fact, our original point was not to have a unified framework. Our original point was just to solve this Cheers protocol problem. Sure, yeah. Because they didn't have a good solution for this. And they were asking us, so, okay, how do you sort of deal with this problem? Because mm -hmm. it looks like the security is very bad because <laughs> you can do this nothing as stick attack. And um, so we spent months working this problem with my students. We're stuck. And then I met my old friend, Ofer Zituni, okay, who is Amir Dembo's Buddy, prob ah. probabilist, probabilist. Ah. Okay. So they work on probability. Okay. In fact, he was the one who worked with me, helped me in my PhD thesis on large deviations because oh, he's the world expert in large okay. deviations. So I knew Got him it. from 20, 30 years ago. Wow. Okay. But then he came, happened to be visiting Stanford and he asked me, Hey, remember those problems we were working 25 years ago? I'm still interested in those problems. Can we do some more uh, collaboration? I said, no, I've moved on several times. <laughs> As we found and, out repeatedly. But then I said, I'm working in this area called blockchains. He looked at me and said, what's this blockchain? I've <laughs> heard of it. And then I thought, okay, how do I explain to this guy who knows nothing about blockchain? In a way that is going to make him want to do something. In a something. way that's that is right. Right. Because, right. Not like there's because, this thing called crypto. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots Because of at that money. point, no. <laughs> I realized that this nothing at stake problem has a very strong probabilistic nature. Because you're kind of growing 
your tree in an independent way yep. at many nodes. So it's like a random tree. And there's a lot of things known in probability about the evolution of such a tree. And right. so I figure out a probabilist can really contribute on this problem. Cool. And so I strip away all the details about the cryptography <laughs> and just turn it into an entirely a stochastic process problem. Right. Okay. And then I can explain to him, and wow. then we start collaborating. And Amir Dembo is his collaborator, so he huh. also brought Amir in, and we start talking. And when we came up with a solution, because not only we solved this particular problem of the Cheers protocol problem, but we also solved a unified problem. Because right. why? Because we stripped away all the details already. Yep. So now yep. we can apply the framework to many different types of problems. So why do we name the paper Everything is a Race and Nakamoto Always Wins? In Nakamoto's paper, there is one page of math in that paper, mm -hmm. out of eight pages. Huh. That page of math is basically analyzing the security of this protocol through a race between the adversary and the honest miners. And th there is a joke that the only distribution that computer scientists know are, is the Poisson distribution. So... Uh, there's, there's a reason it's why. Great. I Maybe suspect. it's enough already. It, it, well, it turned out to be yes. uh, by so magic. So it's a two as a race. It's a stochastic race because of the randomness in the mining. But he never showed that that attack is the worst attack. And so the question is because in consensus, people are always interested in understanding what's the worst attack. Because otherwise, if you design a protocol that just deals with one attack, what happens if someone else came up with another attack yeah. that you have not thought of yet? Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was an open problem. So what we showed in our paper is that, in fact, it is the worst attack. Okay. No other attack is worse than this attack. And not only for Bitcoin, not only for proof of work, but also for proof of stake and proof of space. So that was our main result. And that's why we call the paper, everything is a race. Mm. So all the attacks can be transformed into a race. And Nakamoto always wins because they figure out intuitively that that is indeed the worst attack without mm. being able to do the math to support it. But we did the math, basically. To prove it, to show it. Yes, right. to, because you have to show. I mean, it's not trivial because the attack space is infinite dimension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After this, I know that, and stop me if there's something in between here, but I know at some point you also started to kind of work in collaboration with Ethereum. Yes. And there it seemed like, were you going back to the prism work? Or were you also, was it also coming out of this work? Just because I Not think of the breakdown of the consensus, like the sort of breaking apart of things, I guess. Yeah, so remember, in university, research is often curiosity-driven. So it's not like you're trying to build a startup, right? It's like, okay, I have to solve this problem. Next, I solve this problem. <laughs> research has the liberty of trying to sort of identify interesting problems, whether or not it's related to the previous problem you're working yeah. on. Yeah. So that was now bring us into 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the beginning of the pandemic, I believe. That's and right. I was teaching a blockchain course at Stanford online. And uh, we have to find some projects to work on for the students. And at that time, Ethereum published a paper on their consensus protocol for Ethereum 2.0. Mm -hmm. Now we just call it proof of stake Ethereum. Mm -hmm. It's the beacon chain protocol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that was the one that they will be... Uh, uh, implementing towards the merge, okay? And then I asked my student who was doing a project, I said, hey, why don't we try to understand what this protocol is doing? Maybe we can find something interesting to work on. 
<laughs> and then we spent a lot of time reading this protocol. It's a very complicated protocol. And one thing we observe is is unlike any of the traditional protocol. It's not like Nakamoto's longest chain mm-hmm. protocol, nor is it like a standard Byzantine for torrent, so 40 years history protocol. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a conglomeration of a bunch of ideas. And so my question for a student is, okay, two questions. One is, what objectives is this protocol is trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. So why are they building something from scratch? Why don't they just take an off-the-shelf protocol and optimize that and build it? And by the way, the student is Erdem, right? Sorry? This is Erdem? Wait, which yeah. student is this? New Strat. Oh, uh, New Strat. Yeah. Right. Okay. New Strat is uh, my student. So that was his project. Okay, his project. And also with Joachim, another student oh, of mine. Okay. Yes, as well. Got it. And... Um, so that's number one question. Number two is, okay, if those are the objectives, can they achieve, can this protocol achieve those objectives? Hmm. In their paper, they never actually spell out what objective they're trying to achieve. <laughs> okay? And like so, in the Ethereum paper. Right. Yeah, the yeah. Ethereum paper. I mean, the objective is proof of stake something. Yeah, the objective <laughs> is the proof of stake. They have some <laughs> idea that they want to be so-called accountable. That means they want to punish people. Okay. But yet they want to share some characteristics of their... Ethereum 1.0, yeah. which right. is this notion of dynamic availability, keeps on growing. Did it also have a little bit to do with just the fact that there had to be a migration and like how to do that migration? And if you do the splitting, then it becomes a little bit, part of it can stay the same, part of it gets reintroduced. I mean, as I understand yeah. it now, it's like yeah. switching I, out consensus, basically. Yeah, I think that was original thinking, was to kind of put a gadget on top of Ethereum 1.0. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then it sort of evolves to kind of like something very different. Yeah, so yeah. there's no such putting gadget anymore, but still the research thinking was coming is still there. similar. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's kind of interesting thing about a research about engineering development is that often you're trying to solve a problem and the problem has changed, but the thinking is still the same. And so now you ask the inventor and say, why are you doing this? He said, oh yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> it was because we were trying to solve some problem. Oh, but that problem doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Right, 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 right. <laughs> okay. And uh, so that led to our paper. Uh, it's called App and Flow mm-hmm. Protocol. And uh, in that paper, we formulated exactly what Ethereum is trying to achieve. In mm-hmm. fact, we got in touch with them and said, hey, you know, maybe these are the objectives. They said, yeah, yeah, actually, these are our objectives. So we came with these objectives. And then we realized that the Ethereum protocol is actually not secure. <laughs> the one they proposed in that paper is at, not at that secure. time. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Wow. And we find attacks on that protocol. So that's the second thing. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is we constructed a protocol that actually is secure and also achieves the objectives that mm-hmm. we dictated. Who are who's the we in this and at this point? Yes. So this is with New Threat mm-hmm. and Joachim. So your students New Threat Tas and Joachim Nur. Cool. So those mm-hmm. are the two students at Stanford in my research group. Got mm-hmm. it. I guess you looked at it, shared a lot of these results. Did it change it? Has it changed due to that? Yes. So as a standard in security, when you find attacks, you have to talk to, you should talk to the you protocol them. people, right? right? You don't go and say, oh, okay, so, all right. Go for it, build it. Go for it, yeah. <laughs> I'll be first. Right? Yeah, so, so we engaged them and then we started a collaboration so one thing we found was together with them, we found even more attacks. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So the first step was, in fact, we have a paper collaborating with Ethereum Foundation called the Three, three attacks. attacks. Yeah. So two of them we found, one of them they found. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. So, Who are you working with primarily there? Was it with like Justin and yeah, Justin Dunkrad? Dunkrad, and there was a group of younger people. Okay. Uh, and we have bi-weekly meetings to talk mm-hmm. about ideas. And we realized that there were more attacks. And so we proposed a few things to try to improve the protocol. And it's still ongoing work, really. It's still oh, ongoing cool. work, I think, yes. But what were, so like changes, I guess you proposed some changes, shared disclosures. Did it change the design or was yeah, it yeah, more the, like the fixes? Design change. Okay. design change, yes. Not significantly. Um, so one thing about research and technological <laughs> development is that the timing is often important. Yeah. And we know that the merge is happening soon. And there are 10 client teams, 10 client teams working on this you, yes. uh, implementing this new protocol. So it was a little bit hard to make very big changes in the short time scale. For sure. Mm-hmm. So, so I think our contribution was to identify some problems that they could look at mm-hmm. and have some short-term patch, but at the same time come up with longer-term design that they could switch swap in maybe at a later point of time. Maybe not the merge, but maybe beyond the merge. Got it. So that's what we are working on right now. Cool. Nice. So the project that you are also co-founder of Babylon. I need to, I think we need to f- understand what, like, is there a link between the work you did with Ethereum and that? And we should learn a little bit about it, actually. Yeah. So uh, there's no link from a, uh, from a deployment point of view. Okay. But there is a link from a academic intellectual, or from a research point of view. Mm-hmm. So let me explain that a little bit more. To do that, I need to explain a little bit more about our solution to... Right the objectives that Ethereum 2.0 was trying to achieve, okay? So the objective there was trying to achieve two objectives. One is they want dynamic availability. That means they mm-hmm. want the chain to keep on growing no matter what the participation rate is. I think Shriram already discussed quite a bit of that, so I won't elaborate too much. Mm-hmm. So in any proof-of-work protocol, you have this property, and Ethereum 1.0 has this property, and they want to keep this for Ethereum 2.0. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they want to achieve a property called accountability, which means that if you commit a crime as a validator, you can be punished. Mm-hmm. Ethereum 1.0 or Bitcoin doesn't have this property. They want this for Ethereum 2.0. And in fact, that was one of the things that proof of stake can potentially give. Mm-hmm. And they want to exploit that. It turns out there's a negative result, which we proved, is that you cannot get both at the same time. Oh. You cannot be accountable as well as dynamic availability. It's impossible. Right. There's no protocol which can do that. And so the best you can do is kind of create two ledger, where the longer ledger is dynamically available, keep on growing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then a prefix ledger, a shorter ledger, is accountable. That means what? That means that mm. if you have important transactions and you want to protect it better, mm. then you should wait a while before the transaction get into the shorter ledger. Right. If you have easier transactions, like buying a coffee, yeah. then you say, hey, I want fast transactions. I don't need accountability. I can move on. Is this, like, could you use the word asynchronous here? Like asynchronous consensus? Or am I going, going in the wrong uh, dimension Asynchronous here? usually is a description of the network assumption. Okay. So here is a little bit analogous to, maybe I can use the Bitcoin as an analogy, just an analogy. Mm-hmm. So in Bitcoin, when you confirm a transaction, you can ask yourself, how many block deep do you wait until you confirm a transaction? Mm. Many uh, people wait two block deep, one block deep, they confirm. Some people say six block deep. Right. 
some other people can say 20 block deep. So well, you- in fact, there's no single number that can be that needs to be determined system-wide. Okay. So if you think about it, what does that mean? That means that Guillermo, who wants to buy a coffee, is now trusting the whole block as the ledger, the order blocks. Yep. Me, who is buying a car, is only trusting a prefix of this ledger up to the six block deep. Mm. Okay. So in fact, that was one of the really cool innovation of Nakamoto. So in some sense, we had applied this principle to Ethereum problem, mm. is that the shorter ledger is accountable. But have they implemented that design Yes, that you yes, yes, okay, yes. There are two ledgers. It. Well, I know that there there's a consensus ledgers. in the execution. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, so, two ledgers in the consensus. Yes, two yes. ledgers in the consensus. That I didn't know. Okay. Yeah. So you remember, there's this thing called the Casper FFG. Yeah, yeah. It's called a Fanati gadget. And that Fanati gadget determines the accountable ledger. Mm-hmm. And then there is a so-called... Uh, ghost, which is growing the dynamic available ledger. Okay. So if you tease out the protocol, there are actually two ledgers there. But still going towards Babylon. Yes. What did you take okay. from that? All right. So now I need to say, okay, so if you think about it, accountable is really coming from the history of BFT. Because BFT mm-hmm. is accountability and finalization is very similar. Yes. And so the best protocol to give you a cannibal ledger is actually a BFT protocol, not a longest chain protocol. Mm-hmm. But dynamic available comes from Nakamoto. So the best protocol, the simplest protocol is a longest chain protocol. Mm. And so once we realized that, I said, hey, why don't we just take a longest chain protocol and a BFT protocol off the shelf, both of them, and but compose them in a nice way so that they can communicate each other in a simple way Interesting. to give you this two-ledger solution. Mm. So our construction is instead of like the Ethereum approach, which is to build a brand new protocol, we try to be composable. So we try to put an off-the-shelf BFT protocol together with the longest chain protocol in chemical solution. Ah, okay. And so that led us to sort of a, sort of a further level in our understanding of consensus is that often... When you build new consensus protocols, you don't have to start from scratch. Yeah. You can try to take off the shelf technology yep. and compose them and try to get the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. So was this the first time, I mean, in the work you had been doing previously, you weren't really working on consensus specifically until, I guess, Prism, or would you say you no, were? I've you never were. worked on consensus. Okay. Do you still say you don't? Because I mean, this no, is... No, I'm, I'm working on consensus now. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now it's... Uh, no, no. <laughs> the area that I work in in blockchain is consensus. Perfect. Okay. That's right. the that's the area I work in. Um, but I've never worked on consensus before. before. But of course, while doing this, I learn about all sort of all the stuff. history. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. one should not ignore history, right? I think research is about, okay, first you try to look at problem with, with a blank slate. But mm-hmm. once you have some understanding, you should look back at the lit- literature and see what's been around and not be ignorant. Totally. Right. So going back to Babylon, this idea of composing off-the-shelf protocol can take it one step further. And the one step further is instead of just composing protocols, you can compose existing blockchains. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit different. Mm. Uh, A protocol is something you you deploy yourself. Mm -hmm. Someone already Mm -hmm. gives you the protocol. Someone gives you sort of the algorithm and you can deploy it, right? That's composing protocol. Right. But composing blockchain is really taking existing blockchain, like Bitcoin, a running blockchain, and composing it with another 
protocol mm -hmm. that you could de develop together to form a more powerful mm -hmm. blockchain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we start thinking is that, hey, you know, there are two developments that we observed. One is that in ecosystems like Cosmos, okay, there are many these so-called application-specific blockchain, mm -hmm. which the idea is that they want to give the developer the flexibility to build an autonomous blockchain. Yep. That can be designed slightly differently. That can be designed to be slightly to, differently. Yeah, yeah. Optimized for the needs, for example, maybe right. the MEV application, yeah. etc. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, they lack the powerful shared security platform mm -hmm. of Ethereum, for example. But then we realize that actually there is some very secured resource out there, which is Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so the Babylon project started when we start thinking, how can we use Bitcoin to not to replace the autonomicity of say, Cosmos Zone, mm -hmm. but to complement the security of the Cosmos Zone. Mm. And so this is a composition problem. We take a Cosmos Zone, and we want to communicate with Bitcoin in a succinct way yeah. in order to get extra security that it cannot get by itself. But can you, when you communicate with the Bitcoin network, aren't you always just like using the memo field? Like, what can you do? How can you lock something in? Yeah. I actually, this is sorry, this is just like my ignorance yeah. on Bitcoin, but I don't actually know how to use it as a checkpoint. So the key here is really to use Bitcoin as a timestamping device. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. Nakamoto actually mentioned in the paper that what I'm building, the Bitcoin, is actually a timestamping server. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the, the real security benefit is really for the proof of stake chain to timestamp the events that are happening on the chain yeah. so that they can be, everyone can look at those timestamps. So what is a timestamp, right? A timestamp is really the fact that I'm sending, I'm saying, okay, an event has happened in the proof of stake chain mm -hmm. that trigger a transaction that I sent to the mempool of a Bitcoin right. miner. Mm. The Bitcoin miner includes it into the next block it mines. That transaction gets enough deep into blockchain, secured, mm -hmm. and now I have a timestamp. Mm -hmm. The timestamp is the which block it appears Immutable. in. Mm -hmm. Now, this timestamp is not like a very accurate clock because Bitcoin blocks, yes. you know, not you have one block every 10 minutes. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like a pretty inaccurate talk at a short time scale, okay? But at a long time scale, it's a very accurate clock because for example, if you get a block 20 block deep in, no yeah. one has seen a block has been replaced after yes. it got 20 block in. No one has seen that in the history of Bitcoin. That's right. Okay. So it's very reliable at a long time scale, but not so accurate in a short time scale. I think, but, and maybe you just said it, but I didn't, I missed it. But like, how, but I, I still don't understand, like, how do you connect it? How, like, where's the connection made? If you're talking about an external blockchain, how does it get a message in, like into it? Okay. How does so, it... so uh, now we're getting a little bit technical. Okay. One of the powerful ideas in cryptography is hashing, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, I have a block. I've created this block in a proof-of-stake chain. Now, to timestamp this block, one thing I can do is I can ship the whole block to the Bitcoin miner yeah, yeah. and put the whole block into Bitcoin. Yeah. That's impossible because that goes back to our original <laughs> statement that Bitcoin has a very low throughput. Yeah, yeah. If everybody does that, then Bitcoin will be yep. completely swamped. So, so are you hashing it? So you hash it. And then you have a hash. Yes, and you have 120, uh, 256 bits. Okay. And okay. you post the hash as And you the memo post field. the hash. In the memo field. In the memo field. In the memo field. Together with some signatures. 
saying that your validators I think have when, approved of this. I think you had said mem field, and I thought of mem pool, but mem field. Got it. So it's the memory. It's the yeah. It puts yeah. into the memory of the Bitcoin miners, and now they put this hash as though it was a regular transaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, there is a special tra- uh, field. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the Bitcoin. memo field. Specifically. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. called op return. Actually, it's a very oh. strange. Oh, it's op return. Very, very okay, nerdy yeah, yeah. term. Very nerdy sure. term. It's called op return. It's for putting arbitrary data into Bitcoin. I see. Yeah. And this transaction will get into a block. It will be fixed forever. And right. so this is a timestamp of that mm-hmm. hash. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And because of the cryptographical security of hashing, nobody can create another block which have the same hash. Yep. So therefore, the link between the Hash and the block is secured. Babylon, though, was work project, I guess, conceptually, but is it also now a company? Yeah, so we had this, these ideas last year, mm-hmm. and then we uh, raised a seed round of funding, and now we're building the product. Okay, right cool. Now. Yes. And what is the product? Is yeah. it a tool? Yeah, the is pro- it the bridge between the two things? Like, cause it, or is it a zone of its own? That's And is it going to be Cosmos, actually? Yeah, that's a good that question. Example. So... Bitcoin is here. Cosmo is here, right? Well, so the, the, the audience cannot can. read it. But <laughs> they're, far, they're far away. They're far, yes. they're far away. They're far away. In, in some space under they're some metric, okay. you know, it's good. So what we're building is in some sense a Cosmos chain, which okay. we call Babylon. Mm-hmm. And this Cosmos chain is like a connection between Bitcoin and all the other Cosmos IBC, chains. basically. I guess you're going to be IBC enabled. Yeah. So, so you're like... But just to Bitcoin, using this particular technique for yeah. timestamping the so, hashes. So hmm. the thing is that timestamping yeah. has to be done in a smart way, because Bitcoin is very limited space. Yeah. So our technology sort of optimized this timestamping. Yeah. And then we use IBC to communicate with other Cosmos zones. Oh, nice. To, and they can go through to sort of bridge the security. Yeah. One way you can think about it is that you know bridging is about often bridging token mm-hmm. from yep. one chain to another. What we're doing here is we're bridging security. Would you almost call it like, okay, it sounds a little bit like a roll-up on Bitcoin that's IBC enabled. Would that be at all fair? I know roll-ups have a different thing and I like, I've done, it, yeah, I just it, did it an is. episode about actually the comparison of like roll-ups to bridges and stuff, but maybe roll-ups the wrong word, but it's like deeply connected to the Bitcoin yeah, world. So it does have some similarity roll-up. So one way of thinking about Babylon is aggregating many checkpoints from many proof-of-stake chains mm-hmm. and represent that by one checkpoint efficiently into Bitcoin. Mm. Right. So in that sense, you can think of a roll-up can do this job. But we decide to use the Cosmos chain as our infrastructure to build this instead of a roll-up mm-hmm. because actually Cosmos SDK is a much more mature technology than yep. building a roll-up, number one. Number <laughs> mm-hmm. two is that IBC is already an established technology between yep. different Cosmos chains, so we can immediately leverage that. Yeah. So I think that's why we chose as an implementation platform a Cosmos chain. But you, do, I do agree from a functionality point of view, it has some similarity as a roll-up. So, Although I guess the different, like there is no transfer of like token though. There's it's yes, not, there's no you're, no lo- you're not locking on one. Yes. Okay. Right. So the more technical term is that we are not using Bitcoin as a settlement layer. I see. Right. That's right. Yes. That's right. So, Correct. There's no um, transfer of token. Okay. So here's actually a quick question. So uh, when let, let's say I, I were to you know have a Cosmos ecosystem and you know a chain, right? And I go and I wanna I wanna have this checkpointing. Actually, uh, even just this is a very technical question, but 
uh, how do you, so what do I pay you specifically? A and B, how do you actually, um, how do you even bid for the transactions for the Bitcoin miners? So that's a, that's a non-trivial problem as well, right? You have to have some, oh, you have to some, be included. You to be included, have to, you have to, yeah, have, do you have to pay for that. So yes, right, it, in Bitcoin. Yeah. So, in, so first of all, uh, Babylon, the chain mm -hmm. has to pay Bitcoin. That's right. To get the checkpoint. Yes. But that's the business between Babylon and Bitcoin. No, no, of right. course, of course. But but somehow it has to get translated to people who are, you know, paying you yes. for the service. So, so th th that's right. That's our cost basis. Right. Mm -hmm. From a Babylon point of view, right? Right. And you can't just buy features. But I can't on... just keep on paying and not getting Forever. anything. Yeah. So when others, proof of stick chains, Cosmos zones, put checkpoints into Babylon through mm -hmm. IBC, they have to pay. That's right. Actually, is there anything else that you want to share about Babylon? Maybe where it's at or like if you have any sort of roadmap? Yeah, so maybe a few words. So right now we have a uh, engineering and research team. The researchers mainly come from Stanford. <laughs> I was uh, not, not surprisingly. <laughs> the engineering team is uh, really good layer one engineers around the world. So we have uh, five engineers working for us and three or four researchers. That's our team right now. Uh, we are working towards um, a demo at mm -hmm. Cosmoverse. So oh, I, don't know nice. going, I don't know if you're going I or not. I would love to, but it's so there's so much travel this fall. Yeah. It's going to be. Uh, it's, it's a Medellin. In, Medellin. It's, it's like three yeah, weeks before DevCon. That's right. Yeah. Is it Medellin? Oh, wait, that's right. Because yeah. that was in Medellin and then uh, ETC is in Bogota, Bogota, right? yeah. I think so. Or Defcon. Defcon. Yeah, yeah. Defcon, yeah. Defcon in Boca. But it's not at the same time. So no, it's like, not. It's, it's like, like there's. Yeah, I, I know something. some friends who are going to like travel in the middle. Yeah, hey, that sounds pretty lit. Yeah, so we're hoping to demonstrate our ideas there and get some feedback from the Cosmos community. Nice. So that's our next step in the roadmap. And then mm -hmm. we'll use that feedback and build a test net. And hopefully we'll find some interested Cosmos zones to do a joint test net, integrated test net with us. Very cool. So that's the. Roadmap in the next six months, yeah. Nice. Oh, actually, I have, I have a question. Why why wouldn't people uh, use the the protocol to bootstrap their... Is, that, is the idea mostly for bootstrapping or is it for actual, like, kind of, you know, continual protection, so to speak? Yeah, so there are two, two or three use cases that we are working on. Mm -hmm. One is um, reducing the unbonding time. Right. Oh, so yeah, that's a good point. So Cosmosome has a 21-day unbonding time. Mm-hmm. Uh, using a process called social consensus, mm -hmm. which basically means that the off-chain you have to agree on what's the canonical chain. We can use Bitcoin to replace social consensus using our technology and we can reduce the unborn time to one day. So that's the number one use case. Nice. The second use case is, as you mentioned, bootstrapping. Ah. Proof of stake has a very interesting characteristic. It has very fast confirmation by very slow unbonding. Ah. Right. That's very right, slow unbonding. Right. And uh, the unbonding is 21 days yes. in the Cosmos zone. And, uh, and that's because of something called long-range attack. Yep. And basically using Babylon with Bitcoin security, you can solve the long-range attack. And that sort of connects to what I said earlier, is that Bitcoin is uh, good on a long time scale, not good in a short time scale. Mm -hmm. So it's in fact a very good complement to a proof-of-stake chain. Because proof-of-stake chain is very good in a fast time scale because it does fast finality. Yep. But in a long time scale, it has these long-range attacks. Mm. And so they're very good complement to each other. So that was the first use case. Bootstrapping is another use case. A third use case is, for example, you can imagine if you want to protect some important transactions, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then maybe just finality on 
the proof of stitching is not enough, you want to wait until the timestamp becomes sufficiently deep onto Bitcoin, and then you confirm. So then you can have some differentiated service. So those are the use cases that we've been exploring. Yeah, cool, now, cool. Now, now I'm waiting if you're going to enable the first you know, 35 block deep reorg of Bitcoin because someone wants to do something else on a proof of stake chain, you know? <laughs> yeah, that would anyway, be sorry. quite expensive. Yes, that could be quite expensive. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. So you're doing both, you're co you've co-founded this company, but you're also still a professor at Stanford, I guess. So mm -hmm. what kind of topics do you focus on today? Yeah, so I'll be uh, on leave from Stanford. Oh, you will? To oh, work you will. On this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, a lot of my research right now is kind of focused around this idea of sort of how do you leverage off sort of different blockchain characteristics to get security. For example, here's a research problem we're looking at, not necessarily tied to Babylon, but sort of motivated from Babylon is, okay, I talk about checkpoint to Bitcoin, right? But maybe you can checkpoint to multiple chains. Why only mm -hmm. one chain? Maybe you can mm -hmm. checkpoint to Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and Cardano, Right, yeah. and you can say that hey, maybe as long as the majority of them are secure, then your protocol should be good. Mm. So that's kind of a research problem that we're working on right now, uh, sort of motivated from sort of this idea of borrowing security from other chains. Do you have your own consensus as well? Are you using Tendermint yourself yes, under the hood? Tendermint. Yes. Okay. So again, right, the research is about sort of combining sort of off-the-shelf protocol. Yeah. So therefore, we're not inventing any new component. Yeah. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. Tendermint is Tendermint. Mm -hmm. So we're just trying to integrate them in sort of a meaningful manner to get the full security benefits of both. Very cool. Well, congratulations on the move, the switch from academia. This is the first time yeah, you found... Yeah, it was the first time, yeah. Cool. You're kind of already vaguely familiar with the, the you know, how the whole spiel goes. You went to work for Qualcomm for a bit. And That's stuff. right. Oh, I think this is probably going to be slightly longer. Yeah, so maybe. in the early days in wireless, oftentimes it's done by bigger companies. Yeah, like right. Yeah. right, right. So to impact industry, you kind of have to work with them. It sounds like we'll be seeing you around the Cosmos events too. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. that's right. going to be that's fun, That's the world actually. that I've been spending time in. Really? Validator, CK Validator. Right? We're, we're there. That's your, that's your <laughs> another hat. Another yeah. hat. There's right. a couple hats. What, one of the many, actually. One of the many. A couple, I would say. Jeremy's like wearing a ZK Hack shirt right oh, now, yeah. which is another hat. There yes. you go. There's a so, couple Which couple the orders, audience cannot see. Which they but. cannot see, so I've told Thankfully, them. Thankfully, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But very cool. Thank you so much for sharing with us your kind of journey through all of these different fields, bringing you to blockchain like helping you understand Bitcoin, bringing you maybe into like non-Bitcoin ecosystems like Cosmos <laughs> and building your own company. This is amazing. Yeah, cool. It's so fun talking to you guys. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, th thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I hope it's, it's not, I hope I wasn't too long-winded in this. Uh, no. Describing no. This I think this the way lovely. I think of it is the audience has now been introduced and I think we'll, we'd love to continue our conversations Great. when we have topics that would be of interest to you. Of possible interest. Thank cool. you. Thanks again. So I want to say, Thank you to the ZK Podcast team, Tanya, Rachel, and Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>